Well, good evening. Everybody doing all right tonight? We've crossed into new territory in Scripture from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, into the book of Judges. The action picks up a little bit more narrative and focus. Um, I came across something the other, uh, today, actually, looking through some material that said judges could read like a National Enquirer headline like these. Family feud leaves 69 brothers dead. Powerful government leader caught in love nest. Girls at party kidnapped and forced to marry strangers. Travelers no longer safe on highways, according to female judge. It's kind of some uh, strange stuff going on in the book of Judges, all right? So let's talk about it. What did you uh, notice? What did you have questions about? What do you want to talk about? Maybe you don't have questions or notice. You just want to talk about something. We got through part of Gideon's story, so we got through a few chapters. Not all the way through, but part of the way through Gideon's story, right? Well, the, they did have there are a couple of female empowerment stories in there, right? You had Deborah, the female judge. And then uh, her prophecy that the leader would be killed by a woman, and she did in a graphic way, right? Yes, they <laughs> just a tent stake to the head. And one of the things that's interesting I found out in researching this is the women were the ones that put up the tents back then. So she would have been very adept at using that hammer and driving that stake. So, so do you think, here's a question for you. Was she deceptive in the way that she went about that? <laughs> yeah. Gave him milk and covered him up. And wonder if he had some chocolate chip cookies with that milk as they tucked him in at night and let him go to sleep, made him think that everything was okay. Women aren't like that. Pre-Oreo days, right? But that wasn't the only graphic killing we had. Well, you could, it, well, there is some discussion about that, but there's also this, that he was at peace with that land. That land, he was, you know, he was the general, he was at peace, and it, it was also pretty understood in Eastern culture that you took in people that were in need. So hospitality was a big deal. If you're at peace with somebody, you bring them in now, that, her husband was away and she brought him in was a little different. But that's part of the reason he went there is because he knew nobody else would look for him in there because it's her. No other man would enter the tent. But that's why he felt secure. Um, but I, I don't think in her inviting him in would have necessarily been anything because he was a traveler in need and uh, fleeing. But she determined quickly that she he was... Fleeing, some, some commentators suggest that his statement, don't let anybody else in, let her know people are looking for me, which if he's a general and people are looking for him, that probably means his side did not do real well in the battle. Yeah, that was just being a little more hospitable. Yeah. I mean, if I ask for water and I get milk, I consider it a good thing. Yeah. Hospitality. Yeah. Because warm milk, especially, it would be relaxing and 
help him to get to sleep faster so she could drive the stake through his temple. Right? Yeah. Yeah, she made sure he wasn't moving. What about our uh, overweight king? How was that? The NIV, which if you're reading out of the when you're New Living, the New Living translated better than the NIV. The NIV sanitizes it. The New Living says that he uh, that it went in all the way, that it went out his back, that the hilt went all the way in, and then he relieved himself. Was, I, don't, I can't remember exactly how the NLT says it. The uh, the actual, I mean, it's in Scripture, so we're going to we'll talk about it. But the actual Hebrew says. And his his waist was released, which they say that's an important detail because that's what made the people think he was still relieving himself. This, I mean, to get graphic, the smell would make them think that he was still relieving himself, and then they noticed, uh oh, it's locked. He's not responding, and he's dead. That's kind of a problem. So. Um, he locked the room when he left, the, the judge, the, the left-handed judge, right? Left. Uh, the, the reason that's important is because there are, a couple of, there are two or three philosophies on why being left-handed mattered. Um, left-handed was, how many people are in here are left-handed? Okay. Just close your ears for a moment. Left-handed was considered evil if you were left-handed. You all know, the, do you know the Latin word for, for uh, left? Sinistra. There's a reason for that. Left-handed. Now, the the tribe that this particular judge was from was pretty well known for being ambidextrous. And the reading can actually be read that his right hand was deformed or crippled or unusable. And if you read the, the text, he was left-handed. Where did he put the sword? On his right leg. Now, the reason they say that is because, like any good bodyguards, they would have checked him. But if he walks in with a deformed right hand or a right hand not able, they're not going to check the right side. And so he was deceptive as well. Um, so it's, it's just an interesting little story there. What else do you notice in judges or questions you have? Yeah, they, names are just all over the place. That's like, even Gideon has a, has a new name, you know that you don't, but you don't ever call him that. But but yeah, yeah, <laughs> he had a few sons, right? <laughs> I thought the interesting thing was he had seventy sons because he had many wives, right? And he didn't just have seventy sons because then he had a son through a concubine. So Gideon. And, and that's not counting daughters. We don't know. A lot. Too many. <laughs> Too many. But, yeah, Gideon's an interesting guy. Gideon, usually when you talk about Gideon, you talk about that small little space in his life, right? That short little part where he takes the men out and he's the valiant warrior. But Gideon takes a lot of convincing to do that. Uh, my, one of my favorite things about Gideon not favorite, one of the most interesting things about Gideon is, all right, I'm going to lay the fleece out, and God, I'm going to test you. And so he wakes up, and God passes the test. And then he says, okay, let's reverse it, just to, just to be sure. I'm going to make sure this one coincidence. 
you know? Doesn't that sound like something you or I might do? God, okay, so I said that I wanted it like this, and it's like that, but that may have just been coincidence. So let's reverse it. Uh, one of the most interesting things to me about out of this passage, or this, this part of Scripture, too, is Shamgar. Remember Shamgar? He kills a few Philistines with an ox goad. Um, it's a long stick that was used to goad an ox. So you're, you, you have to think about some of you that, that grew up on the farm before combines. They used to have mules or whatever, and you would, you, so you'd have the mule, and then you'd have the plow behind them. Well, the ox, you had a pretty good distance between you and the ox, and you had to poke him. And so it would have been a long, you know, some say eight, nine, ten foot pole. With a little, with something to kind of sharper, that you could poke the ox to get him to go. It was an ox goad. Uh, what this the description of makes you wonder if it was all those at one time, um, or if it was, which is uh, you know he says he struck down six hundred Philistines with the ox goad, um, and whether that was all at once or a lot, it's just interesting that it's like, oh, and he killed 600. He saved Israel too. He was a part of this. Um, there is a book out. This is this is when I think people do overkill. There was a book out called The Secret Success of Shamgar. And it is about 150 pages on Shamgar. Now, this is the only description we have of Shamgar, what he did in all of Scripture. But the three points they make is use what you have. Um, and I forgot them. See, they were that memorable. Use what you have, start where you are, and do what you can. Now, that's by an evangelist. He's a well-respected evangelist. It was written between him and, I don't know if he's still, but used to be, I know, the owner of the Orlando Magic. You know, that they wrote a book on the secret successes of Shamgar, 150 pages or so on one verse of Scripture. Yeah. And y'all think I go long on verses of Scripture sometimes. What else do you notice in these passages here? What about the Israelites? What did you notice about them? Yeah. It took them a long time to get away, didn't it? One generation. Right. Well, and that's the thing. What you see is, you know, we, we see this generation that while Joshua was alive, they did what the Lord asked. For the most part, they followed his commands, but they did not drive them out. They made them slaves. And uh, part of what is happening there is, is, I think, human nature, that they had been slaves for so long. Their families had been slaves for so long. They had seen slavery all around them. In their mind, they think, well, God didn't mean for us to kill them. He meant for us to use them. And they rationalized what was going on, and so they became like their oppressors. And so they get into the land, and they don't fully, and it's just so much work to do all that. We're fine. We've settled. And so they settle in, and good things don't come from that. But, you know, it's it's really is. I mean, after everything that we've been through with Joshua, we've been through with Moses, we've been through all of that thing. It really is um, kind of difficult to read about their uh, 
verse, like in verse 7 of chapter 3, they, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot their Lord, their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. Just, just like that, there they, there they go. Judges, as uh, I've shared with you before, is a book of cycles. I mean, it literally, and, and what's interesting about Judges is it gives you that, um, it gives you uh, that story. It's almost like it gives you a table of contents in chapters 1 and 2. That this is what Joshua did, finished up his life, and then we get to chapter 2, uh, verse 10, and after that the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who neither the Lord who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. It's very familiar to, if you remember, in the book of Exodus, at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, then a group came up that did not know Joseph or what had happened there. Very similar in wording there. The Lord Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, served the Baals, they forsook the Lord, they followed in worship because they forsook him and served in anger. Verse, 16, or verse 15, whenever Israel went out to fight, this is one of those tragic verses, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, and the New Living Translation says that he fights against them, that the Lord fought against them. Verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders, yet they would not listen to the judges and prostituted themselves to other gods. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge, he was with the judge and saved them. They get excited. The judge died. Verse 19, The people returned to their ways, even more corrupt than those of their father. And so you see this cycle, and it's, I'm, I'm going to use my hands to make motions that will not make sense to you, but they make sense to me, all right? But it's like they do this cycle, but as they're doing the cycle, they don't come back to where they were. If you imagine God is here, they're doing this cycle, and every time they're getting farther and farther away. And so what they're doing is worse and worse and worse and the deliverance has to be greater and greater and greater, and it just is this never-ending cycle. You know, sometimes people uh, will talk about judges in the Old Testament, talk about God being a vengeful God, being a violent God. Well, what they really miss is what you just said, Rick, that in, in the Old Testament even, when God's people turn from their wicked ways or cry out to him, you almost get this sense that he can't wait to come and rescue them. He's waiting for them to come rescue. And he gives them the warning and he rescues them and they still fall away. And when they fall away, it's punishment. But you can't, you can't he wants to come back. It's uh, In the Proverbs this week, we read that verse that, you know, sparks lots of controversy. Spare the rod, spoil the child, right? And, and the reason that God could give that proverb out is because it's the same truth for us as a people. If he spares the discipline, then the children are spoiled and they move away from him, right? So when we get to Proverbs, we'll talk about that verse if we don't want to, but um, it's just, it's a it's a cycle. It's not a good cycle. Anybody try to sing the song of Deborah? Anybody try to write that down with some words? Well, they, they, they wrote, I mean, they, they would have come up with it. And, and you have to realize that they were not as um, concerned about formality in their music. I mean, they, they wouldn't, I mean, obviously, they didn't have sheet music. They didn't have those kind of things. They just kind of, it, it, it would be more complicated than this. So this is probably a bad impression to give. But 
they would have been like in some ways when Eli and Luke start singing a song together. And they just make up words as they go. Now, they're not making up nonsense words. They're making up words about the Lord. But there would have been some free flow in what they were doing and somebody writing it down or they've thought about it and, and uh, trying to put it to music. All right, anything else in Judges? Questions? Thoughts? Somebody has written, somebody mentioned the, uh, Ms. Betty mentioned about Deborah coming to the forefront and the, the females there. Um, a couple of people I read said that part of the reason um, that that's put in there is to show that women had an important place in Israel, but also to show, this is one of those things you have to say delicately, to show how far Israel had fallen in order for a female to be the only one that was deemed to be a leader. Now that doesn't hear me saying I'm not I'm not saying that women and men are different levels, but if you look at that ancient time, if there was a man who could, he did. And they're saying that what it shows is that Deborah was a great woman. But it also shows that there weren't any real strong male leaders around. I mean, it was interesting there. Yeah, you have, you, you, part of that is, um, you know, I mean, it, part of it's because when you became that position, you took that name. So you had Herod the Great and Herod Antipas and Herod. They were all from the same family, but, you know, as you took that, you took that that name. And so, and that's that's far and wide in the ancient Near East. I mean, it's uh, that when you, I mean, in Egypt, they were Ramses. There were several Ramses. So that was just the name of the family. And your name, it, it's kind of like, um, in modern days, kind of like the Catholic Church. When, the, when somebody becomes Pope, they take... A pope name. I mean, it's like Pope John Paul II wasn't John Paul all his life, but he took that name. He took a name. Pope Benedict wasn't. I don't even know that Benedict was his. I don't know what their their names are, but their names aren't necessarily what they become as pope. And so that that's why there's some leader names that are same here in the past. Now, what you especially see that is. Um, when you get into kings that worship Baal, that a lot of them will have Baal in their name, um, or cities will have Baal in their name because of the God that they're serving. All right, anything else before we move on? All right, the week's ahead. The week ahead, you get Gideon, finish his story. Still an amazing story, isn't it? When he goes and he cups the hands and he breaks them from thousands to 300, and then they do that, you're going to get Abimelech. Jephthah, which is a guy that makes a terrible vow. Samson, you remember Samson, don't you? Whenever I think of Samson uh, and Delilah, there's a song that my parents, my parents are big Elvis fans. I know y'all don't expect to hear about Elvis on Wednesday night. Parents are big Elvis fans. And there's an old Elvis song that nobody plays much anymore, which was a hard-headed woman, soft-hearted man, been causing trouble ever since the world began. Oh, yeah. And Samson and Delilah is one of those. Think about that. Hard-headed woman, soft-hearted man, been causing trouble ever since the world began. Talks about Adam and Eve. What would you say, Dan? We won't tell your wife. What would you say? Oh, 
So you'll see that then um, we're, you actually will finish Judges pretty soon. So in the next, not, not by next Wednesday, but the, the next Thursday, I think we start Ruth. So we'll be finishing Judges. All right. Let's go to Luke. Finished up Luke almost. Uh, what did you notice in Luke? Or what questions did you have? About what? Yeah, the, I think that, that that's not given to us in Scripture. I think that probably was a discussion of getting the guard. I mean, it was still guarded. They still had they were they were supposed to be guards still there, and so maybe they could get some of the guards to help uh, just get it open enough to be able to properly. Well, yeah, the reason they put the stones in the guards there was so that I mean the stone would have been there to seal up the grave, regardless. The guards uh, would have been there to kind of protect nobody from taking the body. So the stone, the stone could be moved, but not by two or three women going to the grave. Now, I mean, they had to move it into place, and then they and they had the force of going downhill. But they would have been allowed the, of getting enough people there to, to help open it so that they could prepare his body properly. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, because And here's the thing. That would have been done on Friday. And that, the reason all that might not have been fought through and they may have had some difficulty, that, that's usually done when the body's done. But it was Passover. And remember in the Jewish calendar, the next day begins at nightfall. And so, if you're thinking in our days, when the sun goes down out here in just a minute, it would be Thursday on the Jewish calendar. We think of day beginning at midnight. We have a time clock. I mean, you realize that they couldn't have time clocks like we do necessarily. They went by sunlight. And so, for them, the Sabbath began as soon as the sun went down. And Jesus didn't die till not far from sundown. Yeah. And so, but one of, the reason I'm saying that, Rick, is they they may not have had fully understanding of what they were going to do, but they knew they couldn't leave him like he was. It was in their mind. They, we've got to give him a proper burial. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Miss Dottie. Tell me the verse again there. Yeah. Well, what he he's comparing it. If you remember several uh, several days ago, several maybe a couple of weeks ago, that they went out on the mission. He said, "Don't take anything with you." What he's saying here is. Uh, this time, take it because you may have to protect yourself. Because uh, he was numbered against the transgressions, and I tell you that if this must be fulfilled me, what is written about me is, is fulfillment. So what he's saying is, they're about to arrest me, they're about to take me and kill me, and you're going to be considered my follower, and so you're going to be considered enemy combatants or rebels, or you know, you, you need to be prepared for persecution, and and. It was more for defense instead. I mean, here's the reason we know it's for defense instead of go out and start something. Because they say, we got two. Is that enough, Jesus? He says, that's enough. So it's just a guarding kind of thing. And, and, and then you see that he's not really for them being aggressive because they get to the, two, they get to the garden. And you get that little story with Peter where he cuts off a ear. Jesus doesn't necessarily approve of that. And so... Right, so it's more for you know be protected because you're you're going to have to take the mission now. The idea is that first one was a trial run and you weren't dangerous, but it's going to be a dangerous thing now and you got to go. But that's one of those passages as you read it, you don't you don't hear talked about a lot that 
they, they sit there and they start talking about what they got in the armament and what they need and go get you a couple of get you a sword if you need it or whatever. Yeah. Well, and and what you have to understand too is he's telling them that when he says you need to go buy a sword, we think of that as he's telling all of them to go buy swords. But he's still thinking of them as a collective unit. The you there is a collective unit, and so he's thinking y'all need a sword. Y'all, y'all need something. That's when they need to use that good southern word, right? That's y'all. Where? Are they taking wine or grape juice or are we? They took wine. We don't take wine, no. I haven't slipped anything in there, no, Miss Betty. Hey, here's what, here's what I think. You want to know what I think? I think when we get to heaven it may be wine. I'm just telling you that Jesus says they're going to drink wine in heaven. You can tell him you don't want it when you get there, if it's on the table. But when we get to heaven, we're not going to be concerned about anything he tells us to take and drink. So, some 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 Sunday in the future here at this church, I'll do a sermon called "Can a Christian Have a Beer?" and we'll talk about it. Can a Christian have a beer? We'll talk about it. Although in one of the one of the uh, things we read, they went to beer. Y'all notice that they they went to beer. They didn't have beer like we know it back then. So it is. It, there, you get the picture. Luke gives you that picture as well as anybody that the Peter looks around and Jesus is looking at him after that third crow. What else in Luke? Yes, chapter two. Of Luke? Yeah, sure. We can go back to February. Go. Okay. All right, let me get there, Cliff. Luke 2. You just waited on me to not have this fresh on my mind, so you're going to catch me off guard. Flat-footed. Go ahead. Jesus is at the temple. They are. That is correct. We're scared to death. We didn't know where you were. Jesus was doing what he was supposed to be doing, and they lost track of him. And they were acting like any parents would act when they misplaced their child for a few hours um, or a day, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, what? <laughs> a couple of things. There, there are a lot of commentators say on this. One is that Mary and Joseph, they, they probably had, by this time, other children they were taking care of, and that Jesus would have obviously been the oldest, and any of you that have multiple children know that the oldest sometimes are just kind of told to take care of themselves, and so that they weren't looking for him all around. There are others that say they should have known he wasn't with them. They should have found him before they left. Jesus was just teaching. I mean, he was doing what he's supposed to. I do think it's significant that uh, uh, he was 12, because in the Jewish faith, that was kind of a transitory year. And so Jesus is moving from child to adult. And as he's doing that, he's moving from not having a mission to a mission. I don't think he did anything wrong here, obviously. Uh, I think his parents, I I think what I like about the Bible is it it just gives honest accounts. That's exactly what I would have said to Eli, right? Where have you been? We were scared to death. We don't know what happened to you. 
You can't do that to us. And he may not be at fault at all. But it's just natural human nature. Does that satisfy you, Cliff? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Now, I don't read the first part to Eli. I just read that part. And was obedient. Yes. So, And I think you obviously have that they didn't ask him to come with them because that would have been being disobedient. So you don't see in any way that he was disobedient to them in staying. Apparently they just didn't go and ask him to, come on, son, let's go. All right? They knew he was going to be really special and God's chosen one. And they knew that it was a miracle in his birth. I don't think at this point even, much like the disciples who would walk with him and see amazing things, they fully understood what that meant. I don't think they understood the, you know, I mean, they knew he was special. He was one of a kind. They knew, Mary obviously knew that. The virgin birth was kind of a big deal. Um, But to know what that would fully entail, you know, the Messiah to them, remember, was still uh, a a, a military leader, a warrior that's going to come and fight and bring back the land. So what does that have to do with teaching in the synagogue? I mean, that's part of it, but that's not the most important. Miss Shirley, yes, you finally. Okay, Luke, so that would be, tell me what chapter we're in here, because I'm not, oh, Luke, when he's on the cross, when, uh, well, on, on his way to the cross, Luke 23, verses 28, when it says, Daughters, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves. Because, yeah, one of the things that you, kind of a background here. They had professional mourners back then. Now, that doesn't mean that some of these weren't women that were close to him. But when something like this happened, they had professional mourners that they just went along and cried and wailed. And so funerals had professional mourners. Um, When you have Lazarus, you know, you have this crowd gathered outside mourning. Some of those may have been professional may not be the best word for it, but they were, that's what they did. They mourned. And so there may have been some of them, and he just looks at them and says, Don't weep. Weep for yourselves. The time has come. Verse 31, For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Um, Part of the explanation there is um, that is a reference. Let's go back and look. Hosea. We're going to do some cross-referencing. Hosea in the Old Testament. What do we know about Hosea? Hosea married what? Yeah. Um, oh, that's a different thing. Um, what, what he's basically saying is, don't go to Hosea because that's not where I'm going. What he's basically saying is, right now, the Son of God is walking the earth and men are still doing these evil things. How bad will it be when I'm not here? Right now, the, the tree is green. It is right. How bad will it be when I'm not here and evil begins to run more rampant? So that, that's the basic understanding I have from that passage. Yeah, that, and I think it's a dual fulfillment. I think it's end times, and I think it's, um, I mean, you have to remember that 35 to 38 years after Jesus is crucified, Jerusalem is destroyed. So that generation of women, many of them would have seen when Roman army went in and wiped out that town. And so I think it's dual fulfillment. I think it is that. And I think it is in the end times that it's going to get progressively worse to the point that it's just going to be terrible. 
All right, anything else in Luke before we go to Psalms? Yes. We'll we'll get to this again in Job. Because there's, you know, everybody, if you just talk to popular opinion, even among Christians, you say, where is Satan right now? They would say, hell. Well, he's not. He's here. And he seems to be able to go back and forth between the heavens and here. Um, and Job, he goes up to God, and, and God is bragging. Have you seen Job? He looks, he's my servant. He's great. Satan goes, well, nothing bad's happened to him. Let me, let me have him for a little bit. And you almost get the sense that the way that he was wagering with God over Job, he was talking about Peter. Have you, you know, God, you see Peter down there? He's standing by my son. He's doing, well, Peter hadn't been sifted yet. Let me sift him. Now, why do you sift? You sift to get the bad stuff out and see what's good in there. And so I, I think, Kathy, that he's saying that you know, he's requested the opportunity to have at Peter a little bit. I think that's part of it. I think that, I think that he's saying, Peter, your tests are still coming, and that's going to include now. And, yeah, I'm praying that you'll survive, uh, that you'll... And I think that's an act of mercy. I mean, think about, now obviously we, like I said, we have full knowledge because we've seen the death, burial, resurrection, all that. But if you're, can you imagine Jesus, which, I mean, Scripture teaches that he's interceding on our behalf right now. But Jesus looking at you, I'm praying for you. I mean, now, when somebody tells you they're praying for you, it means a lot. But if Jesus were to say that, it would be monumental. And, And I think it does show that oftentimes our most difficult trials come in our biggest confidences that Peter is almost overly confident that he'll stand by Jesus. And if you look at his history, that's who Peter was. Peter was the guy that pulled the sword and knocked the ear off. Peter was the guy that said, if you're taking him, you're taking me too, you know. But he doesn't do that. He gets confident about that, and he doesn't do that. Um, so it's, it's an interesting question that most people don't really think about when they read that passage. Oh, of course, Satan asked. But, you know, like you said, the question is, who did he ask? Joe, yeah, I think that's in that's in, I think that's in God came near or on the anvil, one of those. Yeah, yeah. And even when you think that that Jesus' first miracle, which was at Cana, right? Miss Betty, he turned the water into wine, right? And so you get at Cana, and he turns water into wine, and he does that because his mother asked him, and he says, "Mom, this this isn't really the time or place." I mean, this is not what I'm, what he's basically saying to her, this is not what I'm about, just doing magic tricks. I mean, I'm not do. I'm not here for that. And for her, it was like, you can do something about this. I know you can. Now, I always want to know, how did she know he could? I mean, you know, how? But she knew he could do something. But it's still, in her mind, it's you can do something to help out the situation now, not that you've been given all this ability so that you can bring redemption to the entire world. All right, anybody in Luke, real quickly before we go to Psalms. Okay, Psalms and Proverbs. Anything you noticed? Questions? Psalm 90, 14 through 16, you like. Satisfies each morning with your unfailing love. Is that where we are? That's, yeah. 91. I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I reward them with long life and give them salvation. There was a there was a proverb that I thought I'd marked. I want to talk about, but not this spare the rod one, but 
Yeah, spare the rods in there. But I guess I then Oh. Proverbs fourteen four, which would be April twenty fifth, four thirty four in the one year. I like both of those. A proud fool's ta- a fool's proud talk becomes the rod that beats him, but the words of the wise keep them safe. But then there's a strange one. Without oxen, a stable stays clean. But you need a large ox or a strong ox for a large harvest. So what's the point of that? Huh? <laughs> You're gonna have good with the bad. Um, what? One of my favorite sayings is, to do ministry, you got to get messy. Right? And what he's saying there, if you want the reward, it's going to take the work and you're going to have to put up with mess. Literally. Right? And the idea there is, if you want an ox to plow, you got to clean the bathroom up. Right? The latrine. The cool room in the evening or whatever the, whatever the judge had um, or the king had. Uh, and I like to think of it this way because um, Susan and I, before Maddie was born, that last week of December, Eli and Luke went to my parents' house. And in four or five days, we were home. I never bent over to pick anything up off the ground. I never stepped on a Lego. I never cleaned up a spill, you know. And having children brings a mess, but it's worth the mess, Right? I didn't realize I missed bending over and picking up Legos and toys and all of that. And ministry is in some ways that way. Living for the Lord is that way. It's not clean and sterile and easy, but it's worth it. What do you think about spare the rod, spoil the child? You agree with it, obviously, right? So let me ask you this. this, and this is, I'm not, I don't have an agenda in asking this. Do you think that that means that Spare the rod, spoil the child applies just to parents? Or does that apply to all authority figures with children? Authority figures. Teachers, principals. Because, I, you know, the issue is, now there are some people out there that say that parents should never do that, but that, that, that talk's kind of died down. That, that's not out there. The real issue is whether teachers, administrators, those kind of things should be able to use the rod, if you will. You know, what's interesting is Texas in some, some, of course it would be Texas, but Texas in some school districts has reinstituted it. Always have to be careful. Corporal punishment, right? Not capital punishment. There's a difference. Parent, um, you know, I don't ever want capital punishment in the schools. Corporal punishment. Well, I mean, for the purpose of our discussion, we're talking about uh, spanking. Yeah. I'm asking you. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> Did you smoke in the bathroom anymore? <laughs> Just not in the bathroom. I, 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 here's the thing. I I think definitely the principle here is that discipline is vital. That God disciplines those that He loves. That we should discipline our children and. Whatever you think, I do think in schools in general, discipline has become more lax. Now, I don't know that that, that means that you have to. Sp- I'm not opposed to spanking. I got licks uh, once myself. What now? If, yeah, but see, at my house, if I. Yeah, he said if you went home and told you got another spanking. At my house, if I didn't tell it, I got more spankings. My, my rule at my house was whatever you get at school. 
you get double at home. Uh, so I didn't tell for three days. Um, now, the question is, is that required? And, and we all, I mean, on both sides of the argument, you can bring out extreme. So you can bring out an extreme of um, somebody that goes overboard in using it in a school system. And, and that's the danger. And so it's almost as if to prevent that, we have to go the other way. Um, I, I don't think there's any doubt that more discipline could be, would be good in our schools. It's just what type of discipline would that be? Um, anyways, it's an interesting discussion, and, and it flows out of this passage. And one of the things that, you, that I love about the Proverbs, and why I like that we're reading them all year long, is that they're short little statements, but they can have huge implications. I worked at a preschool in, when I was in seminary. I've told you all this. I worked at a, a fine arts preschool. It was a wealthy preschool. I mean, you, you had to pay. The tuition was unbelievable to go to that preschool. They didn't pay me any better, but they, the tuition was unbelievable. Um, we had a kiln and our own pottery wheels. We had, you know, all the latest music stuff. And we had seminars every year. We had to go through, I had to go through in-service training. I was working two and a half hours in the afternoon, and I had to go through a week of in-service. And so at in-service, every year we would spend a morning on proper discipline. And they would always tell us that you could not, that spanking was never right. This is this school's philosophy. With any child, in any place, anywhere. Parent, teacher, administrator. Well, the problem is all the people they hired for the afternoon shift were always seminary students. And we challenged them on that one day. And they just said, well, that's a, that is something written a long time ago when it may have been effective, but today it's not. Which was okay for them, but it didn't make any sense to me. Now, I wouldn't ask them to... I mean, I was working with three-year-olds. I don't think I need to be inflicting spankings on three-year-olds. But it went to the bigger issue of what's, what's discipline and what's proper, what's allowed. If you look in the Old Testament, God's discipline is pretty harsh, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you mean it's even with the nation. If you think of Israel as his children, with the nation, he does severe punishment. And so it's not like he's... But on the other side of that, it comes out of what you can tell is a loving heart that wants them to come back. and. You almost get the sense, and, and not, don't don't write this down or send it to Lifeway for a book publishing request or any of that. You almost get the sense that sometimes he punishes them so hard to make them come back more quickly. That he knows that the only thing that will get their attention is to come back. Now, we know that from our parental experience, too. There are times when you can do the soft discipline. Oh, come on. Do and there are times when... From the moment it starts, that disobedience or wrong, you know that you've got to. I was about to say that, yeah. My dad's Andy Griffith's coming back on me now. Nip it in the bud, right? Like Barney would say. So it's just an interesting dynamic to think of the implications that come from that. All right, we're done.